Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to be here with all of you today. You know, I wasn't sure, so on Thursday we realized we had a water leak, thanks to Edna. It was kind of a, a God thing because she came up and the floor was a little squishy up here in the narthex. And so, of course, that turned into a whole, whole event that we're still working on. And so I came down, and Sheila was there. Where is Sheila? And Sheila said to me as I'm going, oh, I can't believe this. I'm trying to write my sermon, and I've got this to do. I've got a middle school retreat tomorrow, and that's not exactly what I thought it was going to be. And Sheila goes, well, Matthew, what do you think God's trying to teach you? <laughs> and I walked into my office and called that a day because I didn't want to think about it. No. No. <laughs> But anyway, it kind of went with this sermon because the big idea for today is living the transformed life, and we're looking at this gospel reading today. Um, this is the fifth of six controversies um, in Mark's Gospels that takes place in the temple in Jerusalem, although this one isn't as controversial as some of the other ones. But at this point, when the scribe approaches, it's still, you know, you're probably thinking, ah, what's coming, because there's always that opposition and hostility towards Jesus from these religious leaders. So this passage kind of prepares us for that, but in the end, the expert in the law, the scribe, commends Jesus for his answer, and Jesus kind of commends him back. I think one of the things we have to remember here is that Jesus' wisdom and authority come from God. Everything that Jesus is saying comes from God, his Father. So I really want to start today kind of at the end of this passage in verse 34. And Jesus says, um, in verse 34, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. So the scribe was on the right track. He'd given the right answer. He was close to where he needed to be, but he hadn't exactly crossed over into faith at this point. He was close, but he wasn't there. Now, at the first service, I said, close just doesn't get you where you need to be, but I was corrected, and Liam told me about five times, except for in horseshoes and with hand grenades. And so uh, he said, make sure you put that in your sermon because you were incorrect by not saying close enough doesn't, always, doesn't get you where you need to be. So here's the thing, this is what I was thinking about, you know, you can get really, oh, Liam, thank you for coming in, are you happy? Good, good. One person pleased. <laughs> All right, goodbye. All right, so, going back to this, so here's the thing I was thinking about, is that we can get really close to people. We can get really close to people, but always hold some of ourselves back, not be fully transparent, not be fully accountable, you know. We can get close to making goals in sports. Yesterday, I was at Aubrey and Ava's soccer game in the morning, and there was some kicks that were really good towards the goal, but they didn't go in, and they didn't get the points. And so I say they tied at the end of the game, but the referees said something different, but we're going with the tie. But it doesn't really count unless you get it in the goal or you make the basket or you get the, 
the golf ball in the hole. Whatever it is, you've got to make it all the way or it really doesn't count towards your score. You know, we can get close to our spouse, we can get close to a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but never totally cross over into marriage or having a really good relationship with our spouse if we're not willing to be totally transparent with them. You know, things in life, there are many things in life we can get close to, but we can never totally grasp. You know, and with Jesus, we can get close to him, but never fully surrender. Last week in my classes, one of the things that was in my Christian doctrine classes, we were talking about people's views of Jesus and the different views people have. And the one that resulted in the most conversation is that people can say, well, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. But they have no idea who Jesus really is. They think Jesus is, oh, yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a good example. I believe he lived. Yeah, you know, I'll go out and do, do what Jesus did. Those were good things. He, he lived a good moral life, good moral example, good teacher. But see, if they miss the part that Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh who came down to die for their sins, then they've missed it. Just being a good person doesn't get you there. Doing good works isn't going to get you there. It might bring you close. You might have all the knowledge about Jesus, but without that relationship peace and believing that Jesus is the Son of God that came and died for your sins and is your personal Savior, it's not enough. You're close, but you're not there. But you know, so many of us struggle to completely give up our dreams and turn to the living God. So many of us struggle with that. Kind of reminded me, I told this story that, uh, let's see, it was in 2010, Brian was, had decided he was going to seminary in, I think, February of that year, and it was announced that he was, he was leaving and going off, and so they were going to start the search for a new youth minister. And so I was down at USF in college, and we kind of rolled around to um, June, and I was working with Kathy Clark, and we were setting up for Vacation Bible School. We were co-leaders of the kindergarten class that year. And Kathy said to me, she goes, do you think maybe you should uh, apply for the youth ministry job? And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Because you see, my plans were is that I would graduate and I would go to dental school up at UF and I was going to be a dentist and I was going to work with kids. Ron Rosansky had met with me. He was all, you know, this is, this is perfect. But something happened and I kind of knew something didn't feel right. But I wasn't going to give that up. And so I remember Kathy goes, well, maybe you should think about it. And I said, yeah, no, I don't, I don't like middle schoolers. I don't like high schoolers. I don't like teenagers. I was one not that long ago. There is no way I'm doing that. Well, later that, that week, we were still working on our room, and I was down in the old office building at Living Waters, and I went in to say hi to Father Matt. And I, Matt goes, hey, have you thought about a... Uh, looking at the employment opportunities here at Christ the King. And I said, nope, not, not looking at those. And he said, well, have you prayed about it? And I said, absolutely not. I am not praying about it. And I remember Matt goes, you're not, huh? I, he goes, why? I said, well, if I pray about it, he might tell me to apply. And if I apply, I might actually get offered the job. I said, so I'm not going to pray about it because I know what I'm going to do. A week later, I applied for the job, and a couple weeks later, they called to tell me 
you got the job. So watch out when you pray. <laughs> but let me tell you, my plans God had are so much better than anything I could have ever imagined. Because really, I think it took me back to when I was four and five years old, and I always would tell people, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be a priest. And so I guess I should have listened to that inner child in me all the way through because he knew better or listened better, I guess, to the Holy Spirit. So Romans 8 says this, it said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death. But to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, Whatever keeps me from the Bible is my enemy, however harmless it may appear to be. You know, this goes back to when Jesus was telling people, you have to leave your father and your mother and all of those things. Because while some of those things are really good, if they're keeping you from having a relationship with Jesus and spending time in your Bible and spending time in prayer, then it is your, the enemy to what God has planned for your life. You know, it can be your job, it can be your hobbies, it can be your family, it can be your friends. Anything that you place above God, you must come to a place where you can surrender it. You have to come to that place where you can surrender those things to Him. Because the other part that we read this morning was, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, sometimes people mess this up because they think, oh, I'm loving my neighbor, I'm loving people, I'm taking care of things. But see, they put those things ahead of God because they're so into serving and good works and doing all that stuff that they miss out on the God side of this. And that's the most important piece to a really love your neighbor well is to have that number one relationship with God. And then there's other people that spend so much time, and I, I said Karen and I were just talking about this with some people, is that they become so in the spirit that they isolate themselves. That they isolate themselves. They so focus on the first part of this, love God, which is great, but they start to isolate themselves and they stay home and they spend all their time reading and in prayer and they don't get out and fulfill the Great Commission. You see, this is a two-part deal. This is a two-part deal. Number one, love God. Number two, love others. But you have to get out to love others. So if you're just doing one or the other, you're kind of missing a big piece. You know, and, and in, the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, this comes up, and the lawyer in that story is trying to find a loophole, and he says, you know, who, who is my neighbor exactly? Who is that guy? But I liked what John Piper had to say. He said, there is a deeper question, and that question is, what kind of person am I? Basically, who am I? Are we like the Samaritan who gives help when help is needed? Or are we going to get caught up in the questions? about who we're supposed to help, and when we're supposed to help, and where we're supposed to help, and how we're going to help. 
And what if all those things make me late for Sunday school? And so then we miss out on something because we get so wrapped up in the committee meetings. You know, committees are needed. I hate committee meetings, personally. But you need them. You need them because that's how you plan. That's how you cast a vision. That's how you hear what the input is from others in the body of Christ. This isn't a one-man show. You know, this is us working together. And so, if that committee, all they do is ever meet, and they don't go out and do anything, well, they've missed the point. I think that's one of the great things about Christ the King is you guys can be involved, whether it's shoeboxes or Daughters of the King or Stephen Ministries, and you have these meetings, and then they actually go out and do something and minister to the needs of others, and I think that's such a great thing here at this church because we have so many ministries that operate all the time and they do have their meetings and they get together and they plan and they pray together and then they go and do something and in doing so they're showing the fruit that they love Jesus ahead of themselves you know what grounds the way we think about our neighbors is actually our identity not theirs what matters first is who are we in Christ? Who are we in Christ? You know, in Christ we are given right standing before God, that's justification, and we are propelled into the love of God and others by the new power of the Spirit within us. So that's going through the sanctification process. We're being transformed into the image of God. We're moving from just being created in the image of God to becoming adopted into the family of God and become one of his children you know and this affects how we see the people around us it's not because they've changed it's because we've changed and we have to remember that because sometimes when we start to go through a change we expect others to do the same we expect others to be different too and we think but if they're not walking the same path we are how, how is that going to happen how is that going to happen we have to come alongside them and help guide them and show them the way to Christ, point them in the right direction, and then they get to make the decision if they're going to follow that. So really this kind of goes back to the end of this passage and back to that verse 34. You know, if we get close, how do we cross over? How do we move into that place of full surrender to Jesus? How do we move there? And I came up with kind of three things to kind of how do we move into that transformed life and the first is to surrender your minds. You know, we have a very rational faith. Nothing in the Bible has ever been disproved. There's no archaeological evidence, as I've heard Father Don saying. I can't remember who he said, said it. But, but, you know, there's no archaeological evidence that has disproved the Bible. If there were, we would know about it. That'd be a number one story. Everyone would want to hear that. But we've never had that. We have a very rational faith. Another thing I think when surrendering your mind is, um, I met with Deacon Bob Green for years. From the time I was in high school up until about a year and a half ago, Bob and I would get together, try to get together once a month, and we'd go to Woofie's and have breakfast, and we both ordered the same thing every week for, I don't know, 15 years about. And I remember one of the things Bob talked about, and this is actually about Bobby Clemens. And so Bobby used to talk about Junior. This was Bob's 
telling me of this, but you talk about junior in your mind, and that junior stored everything. Everything you heard, everything you saw, every image you looked at, every video you watched, and, and they would store that. Did I get it right, Elton? Okay. And you see, what would happen was at times, Satan would use those things to tempt people to tempt people and make them feel unworthy of God's love so much that they got to the point that people would believe that God doesn't love me because of things that I've done in my past because that junior remembers everything. And I remember Bob talking about that. Always be careful what you put in. Be careful what you put in. You know, what is repeated is reinforced in our minds. So what we remember influences what we do. I mean, so often you can talk to people and they remember things that happened when they were four years old. And some of those things are negative and they've impacted how they are and the way they've behaved in their life because of something that happened as a child. You know, I've seen kids in the youth group that have had very traumatic experiences when they were young. And then I've seen how they've grown up and it's impacted them as they've graduated and gone out of high school. And some of that's been really, really bad stuff that they've gotten involved in after they left. And other ones have rose over that and used that to grow in their relationship with Christ and move past those things that happened. It can work either way. But Satan can definitely use those things in us to make us believe we're unworthy of God's love. The second thing we have to surrender is our bodies. You know, we hear lots of discussion today about who owns and controls your body. Is it the doctors that should make decisions? It's the lawyers? Is it the judges? You know, who's to make the decision? Is it myself? Is it all about me and I get to make all the decisions? The reality is this. As followers of Christ, it says in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are not our own. You know, we will be tempted to make decisions that ultimately will harm us. But temptation is not a sin. It's when we give in to that temptation that we kind of cross over into being sinful. But when we accept Christ, when we cross over into faith in Him, we get a new heart and new desires and a new mind, and we turn from those things that we once were doing. I'm sure so many of you here could tell stories of how you turned when you met Christ and can share your testimony. And finally, the third piece is that we should surrender our will you see, Jesus doesn't force us into a relationship with him. He doesn't force us to love him and accept him. He gives us a choice. But it works so much better when we surrender to him because I know what my will is. I know what I want to do most of the time. And sometimes that's not always the best thing. Sometimes I have to do what Sheila said and what is God teaching you right now in this situation? Because, you know, sometimes I just want to go out and get a hammer and throw things sometimes when they're going wrong. We just have those moments that is like, ah, I can't take anymore. But you see, that's not turning to Christ. That's turning 
the other way and saying, I'm going to go do my own thing. But see, now even when you have water leaks or, or the lights that keep going out in the church and it's frustrating, I don't react the same way. And all of you here can say, I'm not who I was before I met Christ. And this is a process. This is a transformative process that takes all of our lives. We never fully arrive. We never stop growing in this. You know, the one who loves Jesus is the one who has surrendered his will to him. In John, it says, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then feed my lambs. And then he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. You see, we have a really high calling on our lives when we turn to follow Christ and surrender to him. Because we no longer get to make our own decisions and go the way that we want to go. We have to be willing to say, yes, Lord, I love you. And I will go where you send me. May not be where I want to go may not be the most comfortable place. There may be a lot of bumps in the road to get there, but I know who I'm going with and who I'm following. And so I know it's going to be okay. You know, in a way, it's very scary, I think, to surrender completely to God because when we do, that there's, there is nothing that he cannot ask of us. There's nothing he cannot ask of us when we turn and completely surrender to him. I remember hearing this story years ago, I think at a youth leaders conference in Nashville, and the speaker talked about a person that had totally surrendered their life to Christ, and that person was William Borden, and his family owned Borden Milk, and we still have Borden Milk, I think, today, and it was in 1904 that William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. He was heir to the Borden family fortune, he was wealthy. And for his graduation gift, his parents sent him on a trip around the world. And so he went to Asia, the Middle East, Europe. And as he was traveling, he started to feel a burden for the people that he met. And finally, Bill Borden wrote home and said he desired to be a missionary. And one of the friends expressed disbelief that Bill was throwing his life away as a missionary. In response to that, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible. They were no reserves. So even though Borden was wealthy, he tried to fit in at Yale where he went to college. And in 1905, he wanted to look just like all the other freshmen. But very quickly, however, Borden was picked out as somebody unusual. One of the friends of his from that time wrote, he came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were in his class learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock. 
just because of this settled purpose of consecration. Under Borden's leadership, by the end of his freshman year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible studies. And then by the end of Bill Borden's time at Yale, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were in such groups. Pretty amazing when you think of Yale today. Borden made it his habit to seek out the most incorrigible students and try to bring them to salvation. In his sophomore year, we organized Bible study groups and divided up classes of 300 or more, each man interested taking a certain number so that all might, if possible, be reached. The names were gone over one by one, and if their name came up that nobody wanted because they felt it'd be difficult, there was an ominous pause, and then Bill's voice would be heard. Put them down for me. Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim people in China, and he turned down numerous high-paying job offers. In his Bible, he wrote two more words, no retreats. Will Borden then went on to study at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. He finished his studies at Princeton and sailed for China. But on the way to China, he first stopped in Egypt to learn Arabic. But while there, he contracted spinal meningitis, and in within a month, the 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of his passing was cabled back to the U.S., every newspaper carried the story. And a wave of sorrow went round the world because Borden had not only given, up, given away his wealth, but himself in a way that was so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no regrets, he had written, no retreats. You see, that's what I hope for for all of us here. You know, we have such a great hope. Karen and I were somewhere yesterday, and we talked about what the hope that we had, because this is not all there is. This is not all there is. And so many times we get caught up in things that are just so temporary and so trivial. And we have so much disunity and division over those things. And see, that's not what God wants for the body of Christ. God wants all of us to be different when we're following him. He wants us to live a life that is transformed. Two of my favorite verses come from Romans, and they are, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. My prayer for all of you is that you do leave here today and evaluate your lives. Are you operating in full surrender? Are there parts of you that you're not willing to give up? because you want to do your own thing. But I urge you, as Paul says in Romans, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Amen.